Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Steve Moriarty. As always, good day, Stephen. How are you, mate? Oh well, I, I actually I won't ask that because you're terrible. So yeah, I've been a bit crook actually. Yeah, this uh, we were just saying before we came on. I think this is day six, and I'm well and truly over it. But uh, as far as I'm aware, it's not a virus, uh, or at least not a lethal one. But the things we do for the low rates, high returns podcast day. <laughs> so today is the uh, third episode in our mini series on the the top ten books on investment or investing. Uh, so uh, today, two more books. Uh, we we choose one each. So, Steve, let's start with yours today. What is your selection? My selection is a book called Bull, A History of the Boom, 1982 to 1999, but I actually think it's 2003. I made a mistake there. By a lady called Maggie Ma. The subtitle is What Drove the Breakneck, uh, the Breakneck Market and What Every Investor Needs to Know About Financial Cycles. Yes, yeah, so um, it's a book that uh, basically covered the, the well, it's, it's basically a history of boom and bust, isn't it? So from the early 1980s, the bull market got going and then all the way through to the, the frothy tech bubble years until the bubble burst and a lot of people ended up uh, holding the bag, especially retail investors. So uh, let's kick off then, Steve, with uh, some of the key themes of that book. So what, what are the, the key themes um, that you identified from reading that book? Yep. I should just say it's written in 2003, so it was very, you know, uh, pertinent at the time, 380-odd pages, so it's a, a solid read. It, it only deals with the US bull market, but it, I'd, I'd like it and I think it's really relevant now because as you read it, you, you sort of, t- you know, in my mind, Mind's eye, I'm ticking off all the points going, yep, that's what's going on at the moment. Yep, that's what's going on at the moment. So I think it's a, my, my overall comment is it's a really good book to read to understand how cycles work and what sort of things that you look for that rather than just, you know, oh, you got a high cape ratio. Oh, okay, well, that means there's, you know, there's trouble. There's a little bit of a sort of a sequence that she goes through but it's really good because it's a it's a mix of investment history, but it and and it gets down into the sort of grittier details of the bull market, but also the 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 benefit really is about how the bull market fades. You and I have talked about this, Pete, in the sense that you know when you look at the chart, you go, oh, March the ninth, nine uh, two thousand and nine, that was the low. You know, nobody on March the 9th woke or March the 10th woke up and went, guess what? It's all fixed. You know, we're on the up again. So it's much more of a, a process and rather than just a point. And the idea is 
to sort of give you the, what are those things, you know, like a flag, a red flag saying these are things that will denote a bull market and you really need to sort of get them under control or at least think about them. Yeah, for sure. I think it's yeah, it's, it's definitely useful as well to take uh, some views that were closer to the time because I think sometimes when people are writing books effectively as historians, you're kind of so far removed from what was going on that you don't have a sense of the the psychological factors yeah. that drive cycles. I think that was one of the themes of this book, isn't it? That uh, you know, some people say market cycles are driven by psychological factors, and others say it's economic causes. But actually. To some uh, degree, you can't really separate the two. I think another thing is as well that you get a lot of, as they always say, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. But I think, you know, uh, as as she points out in the book, every financial mania is unique. And kind of uh, there's there are some factors that are going, going to be specific to that time. So you can't necessarily overlay the past on the present and uh, and predict the future on that basis. But you can certainly recognise some of the similar psychological factors that are, that are driving the end of the cycle. She takes that same sort of broad position where she says the one common denominator through all bull markets is, is um, human nature. Then she talks about the psychological aspects like you just said and also the behavioural aspects. She talks about the key players, you know, Alan Greenspan, a guy called Henry Blodgett, uh, Jim Cramer, you know, gets a mention. And so she spends a, a, a good amount of time on the macro cycle stuff, um, which I, you know, I always enjoy. On the in, uh, the the inside of the back page uh, on the hard copy is she shows the decades of returns and by each decade. And you it's plainly obvious to see that good decades are followed generally by bad decades. She talks about, you know, the Cape Ratio and those sorts of things, which we talk about, you know, in our in our strategies. And so a lot of it is revolving around the eight principles that we talk about. But she really does emphasise the idea that buy and hold doesn't always work. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, as you know, that's one of the things we talk about quite often that you know it, you can't just buy and hold it's not the way it's not the way the markets really work yeah it's interesting actually um you talked about how uh, it wasn't sort of easy or possible to identify yeah well this is the bottom of the cycle and it's you know because we i think in hindsight we look back and see these specific dates but actually when you're going through these things in real time the, the bottom of the market and the top of the, the market it's more of a a process than a, than an event, as she talks about in the book. Now, if you went back to 1986, very little money really going in to equity funds. Uh, but then sort of as the cycle starts to pick up pace, then the 401ks kind of explode onto the scene. And then by the 1990s, you know, stocks were much more widely owned, including by people with lower incomes. And then, you know, the cycle kind of uh, accelerates upwards. And I, I think that's interesting because you would think, if people were more rational about this stuff, as you said, 2009 was a great time to buy stocks because they were cheap, but that's just what wasn't really what was happening. It's only later in the cycle that people start piling in with abandon. So, and I guess uh, lots of echoes there from what happened in this, uh, in the, the cycle through to the tech bubble, to a certain degree, what's happening now with stock ownership becoming much broader. There's some really interesting points that, that I got out of it. 
And one of them was, which again, that ties back to what we talk about with the, the, the earnings yield and thinking about more about timing the market, that, you know, she said there's been three periods that range from 16 to 20 years where inflation-adjusted returns have been negative. And I was just doing this today, just having a look at if you'd have invested in 1999 when the CAPE ratio was the same as today, you would be get well, the next 10 years from 99 to 2009, you got negative returns. And the reason why is simple because, you know, the, the starting valuation was outrageously high. When you look at the start of the bull market in 1982, the, you see that the CAPE ratio was seven and the CAPE ratio was cheap from about 1975 onwards, actually, because they had two recessions back to back in 73 and 74, I think. So there was a tough set of years there. And the 70s also had that, you know, the the um, oil shock and stagflation and stuff. 80s was where we really started to move away from that, you know, that big government era. Um, lots of people started borrowing more money. It was also in that thing, you remember 1987, where the market fell 20, you know, 2% in a day or something. And it really stands out as the, the seminal event, you know, everyone knows. But the interesting thing about that is the CAPE ratio at that time was still only about 16. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't expensive. And what they also don't say is that a lot of the time is that six months later, you'd made all the gains back again. So in other words, it was a really, it was really bad one day, but because valuations were still relative, relatively cheap, and you're at the start of a bull market, it was really just a dot on the landscape, you know, when you look at the the broader markets. So it, I, I think, again, you know, we, we talk about Kate, but I just always try to sort of prove to people that it's a really simple indicator that shows you what sort of returns you can expect to get over the you know next ten or twenty years? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if, uh, as you said, if you if you took a few weeks or months out of the chart, you would hardly know uh, that 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 uh, event had happened. It was yeah. almost a, a small blip on the chart. Certainly, when you look back at this distance, uh, I think uh, your point on inflation was an interesting one because I think that was um, went through financial deregulation. But I think up until the nineteen nineties, as pointed out in the book, I, I think people generally thought that you couldn't have high employment and low inflation at yeah. the same time. You know, that was always the, the theory. Yeah. And that's what we kind of understood. And then it went into the 1990s and it kind of did happen. Unemployment fell by the mid 90s, but inflation was still you know, relatively low. And I mean, that's just something that's that's continued well, more so today, really. I mean, we've got record low interest rates. Of, um, certainly before COVID, we had very high rates of employment, but just no real inflation to be seen, of course, depending on how you measure it. So I suppose that's a sign of how things change over time and to some degree in very unpredictable ways. That certainly would have been very hard to predict then. You could have things like negative interest rates in some parts of the world and, and stuff like that. The thing I think with inflation, Pete, is most people have actually got it wrong, and I throw myself in there. And what I mean by that is that we tend to think as soon as there's a bit of spending, oh, my God, we're going to get inflation. I remember in um, 2010 and 11, there were economists screaming that we were going to have mainly Austrian types, but 
you know, we were going to have hyperinflation because the government was spending so much money. You know, we got zero. You know, it was as flat as a tack. And that was because there was so much spare capacity in China, um, you know, unemployment and all that sort of stuff. So, and in those years since, as you've mentioned, unemployment's been generally low and inflation's been as dead as a doornail. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's so bad now they're trying to create inflation, let alone, you know, try and slay it like we did when we had the bull market here in 82. You know, so one of the interesting points I think she points out is, and again, this is what you and I talk about with the average return of, you know, 8 or 10%. What she says is, well, yeah, well, that's over 72 years. What she says is basically, well, if you're going to buy and hold for 72 years, great, you'll get 8 to 10%. But as we know, from 82 to 2000, you've got 16% compounding. And so what she sort of says is once you actually take the valuation and look at cycles, your chances of averaging more than 10% a year really are about 50-50. We sort of talk about this thing, you never get 8 or 10% for five years in a row. What you get is, um, and I had a look at it today, from 95 to 2000 uh, to 99 actually, the stock market doubled in the US, right? And the, the returns were all 25, 30%. But then from 2000 to 2003, you lost 50%. And so that's where you've got to be really careful. And that's where she says in the book, you know, the latter part of it, that you've got to use the things like valuation with CAPE ratios and, you know, Buffett indicators and stuff like that. Because what we don't realise is, when we're all, you know, drinking, co you know, copious amounts from the um, the punch bowl, it's pretty hard to say to people things are really crazy. You need to get out of the market. But if you read this book, as I said at the start, you get all these details going. Oh yeah, that's what's happening. Oh yeah, that's what's happening. Oh yeah, that's what's happening too. And as I say, when you go through one of those full cycles it really burns it in your head what the, you know, what the red flags are and what are the things that you've got to look for to learn about the bull and bear markets. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, interesting uh, uh, point that comes up in the book is on the, the role of media as cheerleaders. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, we have a tendency to think that media is largely, you know, uh, loving of bad news because it gets clicks and stuff. But I think in the, uh, certainly in the later years of the, uh, the tech bull market, journalists were almost um, always accentuating the positive and sort of downplaying negative stories. And it was almost became sort of frowned upon uh, to talk, to, you know, to be bearish on the market. Now, I guess the financial media has really broadened in scope since those days. And these days, we've got all sorts. We've got social media, we've got Facebook, Twitter, blogs. So, I mean, you can find bull and bear views all over the place these days. But you know, that general sort of euphoria uh, in the finance industry, which um, in particular sucked a lot of retail investors into tech companies back then. I guess that there are probably some echoes uh, today uh, because I think, you know, if you look at a lot of the sort of tech stories, there's no question there's some great tech companies out there, which, um, you know, and it seems to make sense to retail investors to invest in them. But then you look at some of the valuations, particularly for a lot of tech companies that don't make any money. That I think that's where you can see that uh, that where the tide turns, it could be pretty brutal. 
that one of the things I took out of that that whole bull market stage too, which I gets me to sort of ignore a lot of narratives today, and the reason why I rely heavily on valuation is during that bull market from eighty two to two thousand, there was they had the biggest one day decline in eighty seven. They had the saving and loans scandal in the late 80s as well. They had deregulation. They had recessions. The global economy was, like, really chaotic. You had Asian crisis. You had a Russian default. You had heaps of stuff going on. When you looked at it, it just kept marching upwards, right? And a lot of it was basically because the market had started the secular bull market in 82 when the Cape was at seven. And so... In line with what you were just saying, you know, you can have all these narratives about, oh, it's all because of tech companies and the world's changed and, you know, we've got the iPhone, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is if the market's cheap, it'll march upwards. And if it's bat crazy expensive, well, guess what? It's, you know, it's going to fall for some reason. A lot of the, the stuff in the book that's really, really relevant to today And the other one that was really relevant that she pointed out was she said the dangerous times are when there's bear market rallies. And if you go back and have a look at 2000 to 2003, there's there's a series of about, um, I think it's about five or six serious bear market rallies of about 15 to 20%. But and this is why I say to people, you get sucked in because you go, oh, my God, the market's going back up again. I'll jump back in. Whereas what you don't realise is, like uh, March 2020, the CAPE ratio at 44, if it loses 30%, it goes to, you know, 32 or something, and you think, oh, wow, you know, it's time to get back in. But it's still at 32, right, which is, you know, twice the long-term average. But it's painful to sit on the sideline for a long time. But the fact is, you'll do a lot better if the if you buy when markets are, are low and you flog them off when the markets are really high. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the, I mean, it was interesting to read in the book as well how you, you would think there'll be, you know, mass redemptions from equity funds. Yeah. But in fact, it didn't really happen. And, you know, as you said, partly for that very reason, because there were bear market rallies and all the way through to 2003 redemptions were only just you know just a few percent of the, the sector's assets and most people rode that you know rode the crash all the way down particularly uh, painful for the people with a high level of exposure to the nasdaq because a lot of people would have been losing you know two-thirds or more of their money and uh, i think as well just interesting to know that even uh, companies that were thought of to be you know highly highly priced assets like yahoo and so on yeah but the the valuations just went absolutely crazy like yahoo is valued over 100 billion you know more than berkshire hathaway but of course you know when the uh when the tech uh, funds blew up it, it really caused some catastrophic losses for people in some of those aggressive growth funds there's a whole raft of things in the book that she talks about both in positive and negative terms but and, and the reason why I think it's really good is because she also talks to people like uh, Mark Faber, the, you know, boom, gloom and doom report guy. He basically says what you want to do is you, you go to where things are gloomy, you buy there and then sell out when they become overvalued. 
And that's what, you know, you and I talk about in our well to strategy, you know, that idea of buying where it's ugly and then getting out when they start to rise again. She talks about, you know, buying cheap PE companies, um, which is a fairly basic sort of Ben Graham sort of strategy. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. And one thing that really stood out for me was that she says getting the right asset class is so much more critical as a protector or a driver of returns rather than focusing on individual stocks. And that's what we talk about with our risk hierarchy is sort of saying to people, look, you don't need to be a stock picker, right? It's too hard. Just buy stocks when everything's cheap and even buy an index and you'll do just fine and it's a lot easier than it is trying to pick individual stocks. Yeah, so that's what I was just uh, coming on to there to try and tie it back to our eight principles. And as you said, the risk hierarchy, assets allocation, and market valuations, market cycles. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot. There's a lot of parallels there. I mean, as you said, it's an excellent read for those reasons. Just to give you, um, I think, some parallels really, because when you're in the midst of a bull market, it, it always feels like it will never end. But of course, they always do. And um, very useful to go back and read about some of the psychological factors that that drove that that massive cycle, particularly uh, the end part of the cycle, which was uh, where things did get very frothy, probably the frothiest uh, in history, uh, certainly up until up until recent times anyway. Uh, so highly, highly recommended read. So uh, let's come on to our second selection for today. So this is the book I've picked out, uh, The Psychology of Money uh, by Morgan Housel, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, greed and happiness so uh, obviously this is a, a top selling book right at the moment and i think to a large degree as the title suggests it's not really uh, just a book about investment it's a, a very much so um, a book about managing your money sensibly i mean obviously investing is a huge part of that but a lot of it um i think some of the key themes would include in particular, just avoiding making stupid mistakes. I think uh, you know uh, he talks an awful lot about the power of compounding, the importance of taking a long-term view, and I think as well he, one of the points he makes on investing um, is that uh, very often it's not necessarily the person who gets the best returns over any given time period who ends up uh, in the best uh, end position, it's actually the person who just does pretty well for the longest period of time. You know, for people who enjoy anecdotes, there's plenty of those. But as he points out with Warren Buffett, you know, a guy in his 90s who, who's been investing for 80 years, of course, his returns have been spectacular. But actually, a huge part of it is, is simply the longevity or longevity of, uh, you know, Buffett. So, uh, Steve, any uh, sort of thoughts yourself on the book? I know. Um, some of the strategies don't necessarily align too closely with what we talk about. But uh, yeah. on the other hand, some, some really interesting themes in there as well. Yeah, I think so. It's funny, Pete, because I, I think I told you before, when I read it, I was a bit like, oh, yeah, yeah, big deal. Yeah, nothing that good. But then when I reread it, I sort of went, all oh, right, yeah, there's the risk hierarchy. Oh, yeah, there's the sort of Kelly criterion stuff. Oh, right, yeah, there's the eight principles. It sort of grew on me a lot more the second time around. It, it didn't present that much new to me, but, you know, I've been investing for 20 years, so that's no surprise. But I think it's a really good book to start investing and even a mid-level investor 
because there's there's a, a good and bad point. I think he tries to cover too much and it gets a bit thin. The benefit of that also is that there's good information in there for people to go, you know what, I'm really going to follow up that one that he talked about, about compounding, right, or, you know, the the seduction of pessimism is one that he talked about, which I didn't agree with because I think he gets a little, you know, I think Americans tend to just be a bit overly optimistic all the time. But, again, it's a really good book for you to read all of the um, the chapters and then sort of go, oh, there's the things I really want to focus on. So I think it's I think it's really important, and I think the the anecdotes are really good as well because a lot of the time, if you if you just tell people the sort of straight numbers or something, it doesn't really gel. Some people need a metaphor. You talk about you know oh well what's price and value? I don't I don't get it. Okay, we'll think of a pun of strawberries, right? And if you really like strawberries and they're half price, well you buy a lot of them. Right, okay. Oh, okay, now I see how it works out. So uh, I think those anecdotes and those metaphors are really good to explain the concepts, you know, behind them. Yeah, very topical with uh, Wimbledon on at the moment. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. So the book is basically laid out as 20 chapters. So it's almost like 20 short themes. Uh, So, I mean, that is one of the benefits of it. It's a pretty short book. It doesn't go on for hundreds of pages. And as you said, it can be a bit of an ideas generator, Probably the chapter that resonated most with me uh, was the third chapter on the concept of never having enough. Because I think, uh, you know, I think we all sort of know this intuitively, but it's really interesting to read some of the analogies and anecdotes that he mentions in there. And as he points out, it's probably personal finance is probably the only sphere um, where somebody who is a financially sophisticated investor with you know, decades of experience can still end up blowing up uh, because they use leverage or they take on too much risk. It's probably the only sector or sphere where somebody with almost no knowledge at all can actually end up doing better as long as they don't overstretch and as long as they stick to some basic principles, i.e. spend less than you earn, you know, invest in diversified uh, assets and so on, and uh, and just let time do its thing. Um, and I, th- I think it sort of re- it sort of equates to what Buffett said. You know, t- taking risks to acquire things that you don't need um, is is just stupid, essentially. And I think you know we all know that. You know, you shouldn't overstretch, and you know, as long as you do a few basic things very well, you'll do very well over the long run. But it's it's only when you read some of the stories about people who've you know, they've made millions, but then they just can't stop themselves taking <laughs> risk and in the end end up blowing up. That it, it really brings it home to you. Certainly, the, to some po- at some point, you've got to stop the goalpost from shifting and just be, be happy with what you've got and just don't take on, you know, don't make stupid decisions because you'll do just fine in the long run. Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the things I thought about when I read it was, which is what I often do with authors, is try and work out what personality type they are because what you find a lot of the time is it underlies a lot of the stuff in the book. I think the reason why you and I like it is because he's the same personality type as us, which is a type seven. So he's he's generally optimistic. He likes to read a lot of information. He's very sort of, you know, um, prudent's not the right word, but he's quite thoughtful. Um, and he sets up 
all of those things that you and I talk about, and that's why I was sort of saying when I read it the second time, it was a bit like, oh, actually, he talks about a lot of the things that we talk about, which is, you know, beneficial, of course. But I think there was a couple of, you know, the, what you talk about there, and I was thinking about it today because it's really, it's really hard to know what is enough. I've only seen a few people who say, you know, it might be five million or whatever, but have a figure that say, yeah, that'll be enough. But then the next and the interesting step, I think, Pete, which we talked about last week about why you should learn about investing is because you can have enough, you know, so to speak, but if you get belted in a market drawdown, suddenly you haven't got enough. And so you've got to know how to invest money and that's the beauty of these two books. You know, if you look at it and go, okay, I understand how bull and bear markets work and I understand the broader philosophical stuff that Morgan Housel talks about, the books actually marry really well together with that point that you were saying, which is, well, when do I stop? And I think, you know, you and I have sort of discovered that you don't really stop. You just do the things, you just convert to sort of doing the things that you like doing and just making sure that you manage your money in a sensible way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's a couple of uh, things that come out of that. One is um, the concept of how you will change yeah. over time yeah. uh, because, you know, I, I think in the um, in the real estate world, you often see these 10-year um, property plans and it's, it's a bit like, you know, I'll uh, save up, buy an investment property and then maybe in two or three years' time I'll do, you know, do another investment property and th these are the, you know, projections and so on. But it, you know, which is great, you know, it's good to have a plan to work towards. But then I look back on my journey and it's like, well, you know, as, as we talked about on a previous podcast, you know, I was working in uh, Sydney and then, you know, I was working at a full-time job and then I thought, no, I've had enough of this and I went travelling for a year and then, you know, decided to go off and do my own thing and that just took me off in a completely different direction and then ended up in Queensland. <laughs> so, you know, if I, if I tried to sort of predict that in hindsight, uh, no, no plan would have factored in any of those things. And, uh, you know, so I think it's important to have some level of flexibility because whether you like it or not, uh, your situation will change, but probably you'll change as a person as well. Uh, so that was only, you know, it's a very, very short chapter. You're talking three, you know, three pages or four pages or something. But as you said, it's a very, it's almost a useful uh, trigger point to go sort of and investigate some of those themes a bit further. And I, I think one of the other um, uh, themes or points that he makes is about how we're all influenced by what's happened while we've been alive, whether we like it or not. And as you said about uh, a lot of uh, people of his own generation being very, very bullish on stocks, but to some degree, that's what well, a lot of them, you know, that's all they can remember. 2009 to 2021 has just yeah. been one big bull market. So, of course, they tend to be optimistic uh, because that's that's all they've seen. Uh, but it's, I think the same applies to, you know, like the post-war generation was, was worried about um, security and they didn't borrow, you know, and then... Uh, my, my parents' generations were, you know, terrified of high interest rates and high inflation, uh, whereas now people have got used to the idea of low interest rates, low inflation. So the, the way in which we're also influenced by what has happened during our own adult lifetimes. Yeah, I think um, I remember reading, you know, after the war, everybody was worried about nuclear weapons. 
Um, and I remember reading Ben Graham where he discussed about, you know, the, the, the threat of nuclear war. So, you know, that was the, the overarching theme that a lot of young people today don't really understand or realise what their parents, you know, what the, the sort of zeitgeist of the time was. Just as you were saying today, they did an investor survey uh, last week. I can't remember who did it, but American investors are expecting, get this over the next 10 years, 17% per year. That's what they're expecting to get in investment returns. The last time they expected that was around 2000. Um, and so we all, you know, there's a bit of a flag for you if you're thinking that you're going to get 17%. But it just, it just, you know, underlies again the point in both the books, you know, where Housel talks about change both inside, internal in, in yourself, but also how the market changes as well. And Maggie Ma talks about that by saying, you know, when when everybody's drunk at the punch bowl, everybody thinks it's just going to get better and better. And the reality is that, you know, you get a, a serious dose of um, mean reversion. She sort of talks about that and talks about Taleb's, you know, payoff and probabilities, which is another one that you and I talk about by saying, well, yeah, yeah, the market might go up 10%. Um, and there's an 80% chance that it'll do that, but there's a 20% chance that it'll crash 50%. And if that happens, well, you know, that's not a really good payoff. So why would you have a lot of money in the market when, you know, like today, you've got a cape at 38, you've got crazy property markets, you've got crazy stock markets. And so that was what I was saying about household, you know, like that one point that I, I differed on was that, you know, like, oh, well, don't buy pessimism. And my argument is along the same lines as what Maggie Ma said, which was basically like, listen, there's some times that you shouldn't be in the stock market, you know, you should be in the property market or you should be in the gold market or something. So other than that, I reckon it's a, you know, it's, it's a really good read for sort of newcomers and even, you know, mid-level experienced investors. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean, it does actually have a chapter on uh, surprise because, you know, surprising things come along. But yeah. as you said, I think uh, you could probably overlay that with a CAPE ratio, which would, would solve a lot of the problems for you because surprises tend to be a lot more punishing when markets are coming from a high yeah. base. Yeah, and I don't need to go through all of the themes, but uh, uh, I think there's there's a couple that would be familiar one thing, you've got to try and run your own race and don't take your financial cues from somebody who's playing a different game because you, you just never know. You know, if somebody else, they might have invested, uh, they might have inherited a, yeah. a lump of money or, you know, <laughs> other people might have different goals from you. And I think that's especially true in the euphoric stage of the cycle. I think, you know, when people are telling you, oh, well, I've made millions, you know, like on yeah. you know some random investment, you just got to remember to run your own race and not get sucked in. And I think, uh, as he points out somewhere in the book as well, that, uh, that those are the points of the cycle that people are most likely to fall prey to scams or uh, sort of less, um, <laughs> yeah, well, people with less integrity than they ought to have. And, you know, I think just some, some really basic, simple themes on, you know, the, the results you can achieve from compounding and how, you know, people like Buffett have made yeah. the great bulk of his wealth after he was 65, you know. So, uh, but I think particularly for me, just uh, the, the things I really enjoyed, the things like, you know, the, the concept of getting wealthy versus staying wealthy, uh, not taking 
stupid risks and just having a reasonable and a rational approach instead of uh, swinging for the fence all the time. I think, um, yeah, as you said, you, you'll find if you read the book, there's 20 ideas for you that you can go away and explore in more depth and, uh, you know, just a really good read. So, uh, yeah, so I think um, let's uh, basically wrap it up there for today. So next um, next week, uh, two more books for you in the mini series. And uh, thanks for joining today. And hopefully by next week, I'll actually have my voice back yeah. and be uh, uh, not uh, sniffling all over the microphone. So thank you for joining today and we'll see you next week. Cheers, folks. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter So do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.